Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, co-host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with two leaders of one of the largest post-acute organizations here in the United States, and that is Josh Prophet, President, and Dr. Ben Doge, Chief Medical Officer of LHC Group. Now, many of you may be saying, LHC Group? Who is that? Well, LHC Group is actually the parent of many home health agencies, hospice organizations, and other community-based and post-acute organizations and even facilities across the United States. In today's episode, you'll hear Josh talk a little bit about their growth through joint venture expertise, and Dr. Ben Doge, who's also a practicing family physician, how he talks about their approach to the impact of COVID-19 and how they're being part of the solution. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and of course, feel free to check us out on other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting pophealthpodcast.com, Apple Music or iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube as well. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining us. Let's start with you, Josh. Uh, Great background, by the way. Uh, Tell us something about you that maybe even your colleagues may not know about you, maybe something outside of the LHC world. Oh, wow, Gavin. Um, I guess, you know, uh, one thing that I've always tried to do is uh, be pretty active in athletics. Uh, you know, grew up playing several sports, primarily basketball, um, and still to this day, as best I can at my age, try to stay in shape uh, where I can go out and compete at, at some level. Uh, so all the way through undergrad, um, college, and law school, I played a fair amount of competitive volleyball, um, uh, both courts, you know, indoor sixes, as well as in sand doubles and continued to play at at a decent level through my late 30s and really for the past two, three years, haven't played much at all. Well, my middle son, I've got three boys, uh, my middle son uh, who is um, going into freshman year uh, this coming school year, uh, his girlfriend actually plays travel competitive volleyball and she's pretty tall, really good, good athlete, good volleyball player. Uh, so she hoodwinked me last weekend into getting back into the sand, and she and I played a doubles tournament. Nobody here at the office even knows this, um, but I was the second oldest participant. She was by far the youngest participant, and we came away with the tournament win. So that was pretty cool. You still got it, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I'm uh, I'm five foot six, and uh, I actually played some competitive beach volleyball in my college days uh, in a class. We actually got units. For playing beach volleyball. I went to school in Santa Barbara, California, and we actually got oh, yeah. college units for beach volleyball for physical education. So uh, congrats, man. How about That's you? Awesome. Thank you. How about you, Dr. Doge or Dr. Ben? Yes. Uh, so yeah, I have several hobbies. Um, I'm not very good at any of them, uh, which is probably why I work so much. But, uh, and I'll give you an example. I, uh, I had a friend that was very uh, much into skydiving, and I thought that that was going to be the coolest thing that uh, that any person could possibly do, and so uh, I, I learned a lot about it, and uh, and got a little training on it, and then uh, went up and did my uh, first jump uh, several years ago, and it scared me to death, and uh, I haven't been up again, uh, nor will I ever go back up. So that that's about how many of my hobbies uh, how, how I go, but uh, I still list it as one of my hobbies because I have to get some uh, some uh, upside to having done that and jumped out of a plane. So. That is that is awesome. Did you have to get permission from any close family members to do that? 
Um, so uh, I did it kind of uh, behind everyone's back, just kind of on my own. So, uh, so yeah, I asked for, for permission. I asked for forgiveness after. And, uh, and it, it, assuredly, it will not happen again, I, I guarantee. Did you get one of those uh, music videos with that, where they filmed you or no? No, uh, I, didn't do, I didn't do the video, which I, I regret now because it's not going to happen again. But I do have some pictures of the event. Awesome. That's great. That's great. So uh, back to you, Josh, um, LHC Group, you mentioned you did undergrad, you did postgrad work, you went to law school. When you were growing up, going to school, were you thinking you would be working for a healthcare company? Wow, that's an um, interesting question, Gavin. Uh, what I would tell you is uh, growing up from a very early age, I, I wanted to be a physician. So I'm kind of envious of my colleague here, uh, Dr. Ben. Um, I specifically, in a weird way, I had honed in on, I wanted to be an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Uh -huh. um, why? I have no idea, but I can remember as young as, you know, 10 years old telling anybody that asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Um, so I, I was all the way through my first two years of undergrad, kind of on a pre-med track, uh, going that direction, and then pivoted, uh, went into business, went into accounting. Um, and in my last semester of undergraduate work, uh, one of my best professors at the University of Kentucky, uh, Professor Pope, uh, sets me down and he's like, have you ever thought about law school? I'm like, I have not. <laughs> so he really encouraged me to take the LSAT, to look into going to law school. Um, so when I got into law school, I, I knew I didn't want to be what I envisioned as an attorney, a courtroom attorney or, you know, doing wills, trusts in the state. You know, I, I want to do more transactional corporate type work, mergers and acquisitions, that sort of thing. And once I got into the field um, in, uh, with the firm in Atlanta that I was with, Alston and Bird, I gravitated toward the healthcare practice. So I was able to balance my desire to have an influence on healthcare while still being a M&A transactional attorney. And then, you know, for my seven years there, really dug in hard in healthcare. LHC Group was one of my clients. Um, along with several other healthcare companies across the space um, and, you know, really fell in love with it and, you know, would never, hopefully never have to leave the healthcare field. I, I just, I have a real heart for it. That's awesome. I don't know of many CFOs that had a legal background. Uh, have you met other folks with a similar background as you in your same type of role? No. Um, so I've got, you know, I'm, I'm an accountant uh, plus a lawyer. So that makes me, you know, somewhat of a unique bird so to speak, uh, and really grew up in the, the legal track, but was focused on transactional work. Um, you know, uh, even at LHC Group for a number of years was the one that was leading the development of our five-year projection models and any kind of strategic transactions. So I was always working more on the financial side of the business, even though I was an attorney. And um, But you're not going to see that in a how to become a public company CFO manual somewhere is go be a lawyer first, that's for sure. Awesome. Thank you. And how about you, Dr. Ben? Uh, were you, when you were growing up, were you always thinking physician? Tell us about that. So, uh, so yeah, I was, a, I was a kid, and I didn't know that about Josh wanting to be a physician. I'll have to talk to him about more clinical issues than I already do. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, I also uh, had a lot of interest in being a physician um, growing up. And uh, but I'm a very uh, grew up in a very practical family, and I uh, actually worked uh, in a couple of different roles in a hospital. I worked as a patient transporter. Uh, I worked as an assistant to a physical therapist, and that kind of uh, fueled my desire to to continue on into healthcare. 
and uh, ended up getting an undergraduate degree in occupational therapy and worked for a few years uh, and then went back to med school. So uh, that was my background, but I was in healthcare and uh, the delivery system was So Dr. Doge or Dr. Ben, what inspired you to join LHC while still practicing and, and leading your own practice? Sure, that's a, that's a good question, uh, Gavin. But uh, I started practicing uh, in, in Lafayette, Louisiana in 2002. And uh, at that time, uh, joined a primary care group and, and was growing my practice and uh, had a lot of options for home health care uh, in the area and uh, was referring to a lot of different places. And over time, over the first few years of my practice, um, LHC Group's um, home health care service line uh, seemed to separate itself out um, just for the quality of care that they were delivering, but more for their compassion for the patients. I felt like uh, they treated the patients the way I treated them in my own practice. And I just felt it was just a level of comfort, truthfully, um, that I had. And so I would use them more and more often. Uh, at the same time, uh, they opened the first uh, LTAC unit, long-term acute care unit uh, here in the area. And uh, so I followed patients um, uh, on those units uh, from my patients transferred from the hospital to that post-acute setting and uh, impressed with the way they ran it. But aside from that, I, I had really not much interaction uh, with LHC group for, for that 10-year period other than the the physician-patient uh, relationship uh, and coordination of care. Uh, at the same time, I was getting involved more in the um, numerous committees and board level and administrative uh, um, process, both in my, in my group, becoming one of the managing partners as well as at the hospital. And uh, about five years ago, uh, LHC Group uh, approached me uh, to take on a position uh, that they termed as a chief medical advisor. Uh, just to come in and, and, and do some consulting with them in a few hours a week. And uh, I thought, you know, that they had always done such a good job with our patients. I'd like to see more. And they listened to physicians. And so I said, sure, I, that sounds like a good fit. Uh, it's a good company. And I'd, I'd like to spend more time with them. And then that relationship over, over five years uh, grew and my, my role expanded uh, and to the point where it is now as the uh, chief medical officer. Awesome, Dr. Doge. And how about you, Josh? How about your connection? Yeah, so um, as we got to know each other a little bit at the start, and my background being with a uh, large national law firm headquartered in Atlanta, um, I had multiple healthcare clients, and I was really focused in the healthcare sector and the healthcare practice group at Alston and Bird. Um, LHC Group was one of my clients. Um, I had some other national reach clients as well as some more locally there in the southeast and in Georgia. And, and when I was, you know, entertaining the, the notion of leaving a standalone legal practice and going in-house with a company, which is what my intentions were, um, uh, you know, LHC was just such a fit for me and such a draw. Um, and, and it was really benefited by having been outside advisor for the company through the initial public offering, through a lot of the initial growth years. Um, I helped form a lot of the joint ventures during that time um, and, and really got to know the fabric of who, you know, Keith Myers was and who the leadership team at the time was. And, and the culture of this organization drew me to it and the culture of this organization that is focused on the patients first and very clinically oriented and driven um, patient first on every decision we make is what has retained me here for now going on 12 years and I hope to be here for a long time going forward because there really is something special about this place. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you both, um, well, you both had experience 
with LHC, but not as part of LHC prior, which is pretty neat to see. So the general public uh, may not think of or know LHC group by that name. They may think of it, for example, if you live in Dallas as DFW Home Health. How did LHC group become the size it is today? How did that all happen? Yeah, Gavin, that's a great question. So um, I would take you all the way back to her humble beginnings. Um, you know, uh, Keith Myers, who is still our chairman and CEO, uh, his wife, Ginger, who is a nurse, um, the LHC group started from a very missional calling kind of a place where Ginger was working at the local hospital in the parish. Uh, we have parishes here in Louisiana and the counties. Uh, so Ginger was a nurse at the hospital, and uh, this is back in the mid-90s, around 1994. And at that time, there were four elderly individuals in Keith and Ginger's uh, little village. It really, I wouldn't even call it a town. It was about a 700-person village way out in the countryside um, called Palmetto. And there were four elderly individuals that were being discharged or let go from their home health company at that time and were going to have to be institutionalized and would have to go to a nursing home or whatnot. And, you know, Keith and Ginger were so part of the fabric of that, that community. And Ginger was the only nurse in town and really had a calling to go help those folks. So in the mornings on her way into the hospital and in the evenings on her way home, she would literally round on those patients. There was no home health license. There was no business plan. There was no become LHC group. She just did what was right for her fellow man. And the size of her heart and the size of compassion that really is part of that, that fabric that I talked about and that culture started at, at that point in time. Then, you know, about a year or so later, uh, they end up putting together an actual home health provider. One little provider in rural Louisiana uh, for, to let Ginger now do what she had fallen in love with doing. Um, you, you fast forward that a few years, and in 1998, we put together our very first joint venture with a health system. So that same hospital that Ginger used to work for, the hospital that both Keith and Ginger were born in, had their own home health at the time. And we're wanting, you know, evaluating options of what to do. Do they get out of the home health business? Do they continue? Uh, Ginger had a real growing, thriving business that she was starting to do and had such a reputation for quality care and patient outcomes. They sought her out and they ended up putting together the first ever, as we believe, home health joint venture with a hospital in their very hometown. Um, and you, so you, you go from there, you grow a little bit more in Louisiana, you spread out into Mississippi, um, and, and, and from the very early years, and part of our differentiated model is our joint venture model with hospitals and health systems, and at some point we may even talk about that on this podcast, uh, but it, it started from those humble beginnings, and our growth trajectory from then till now uh, all the way up to the almost family merger that happened a few years ago. But if you kind of park that to the side, our growth trajectory all the way up through the early years was really bifurcated between a standalone acquisition and organic growth, as well as growing into more and more hospitals and health systems. And really the DNA of LHC group is to be an adjunctive partner to hospitals and health systems. And it started back then in 98, and it has really been part of our growth engine uh, up till today. Wow, man, I 
uh, is Ginger still involved in the company or make an appearance here or there? Or? Oh, she, she's still very much involved. Uh, so uh, from the cultural standpoint, um, we do something called Excellence by Design once a month. Now we've had to delay it during the coronavirus pandemic because folks can't travel into our home office and whatnot. But um, when, when travel is permitted, once a month we bring all new leaders through the organization. We operate in 35 states plus the District of Columbia. So anytime you have a new director of nurses or a new administrator of a hospice location um, across the whole country, they come in usually in classes of 20 to 30 individuals once a month. And the first hour and a half of that session um, is Keith and Ginger sitting on two bar stools, just explaining the, what I just told you, but in a lot more detail, explaining yeah. the, the, the story of why did this start? This is all about patient care. This is all about compassion. This is all about taking care of the frail and elderly in our communities. And, and we don't talk about P&Ls. Uh, you know, we don't talk about the financial statements. We, don't, we, we really want our leaders to be ingrained in the culture and why we do what we do. So Ginger plays a huge role in that, huge role in that. Yeah, that, that is pretty neat. That's a great story. Uh, and it's great to hear that she's still involved 20 plus years later. Um, with these joint venture models, if you mind me asking, and this could be for probably Josh, I would guess would be my probably the expert here. Does the hospital and LHC have financial ownership in all your joint JD models or can you kind of tell us about the structure as much as you're able to? Sure, sure. Um, no, so, and, and maybe I'll step back and walk through a little bit of the progression. So, you know, we started with that joint venture uh, in um, St. Landry Parish here in Opelousas, uh, Louisiana, um, and, you know, kind of continued to, to grow through um, more rural hospitals and, you know, single hospital systems, um, you know, back back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and, and then our JV model really took off, I would say, when we partnered with Baptist in the Jackson, Mississippi marketplace. That was our largest at that time. And, and we, we grew that home health partnership from a single location with you know, less than five million in home health revenues to an eight location, 25 plus million dollar home health operation with the Baptist Partnership as we kind of, you know, broadened it with their footprint and, and grew it from just one location. From that experience, um, the first one that I worked on as being in-house with LHC was our partnership with Oshner Health System in New Orleans. And with Oshner, that was when I joined the company in 2008, we put that partnership together. And that then broadened not just with home health, but we've got home health, we've got the long-term acute care hospital, and we've got a lot more, um, I would say, innovative healthcare delivery models that we've developed with Oshner over the years. Uh, then you mentioned BFW earlier. When we you know, went into the Dallas-Fort Worth market, we actually entered into our first ever three-party joint venture with the two health systems in the marketplace with Texas Health Resources and Methodist. So although Texas Health Resources and Methodist are you know, competitive, if you will, in the acute care space in the marketplace, we cover all of their hospitals for both systems in a three-part joint venture between LHC Group and those two health systems uh, and have been doing that for a number of years. Um, then you fast forward to 2017 when we were selected by LifePoint Health to be their national partner 
for all in-home operations for home health and hospice. And, you know, LifePoint has 70 plus hospitals across the country um, and, and really took the, the size and scale of who we partnered with to a much broader national level. Uh, so today we're now, you know, about 80 unique partnerships that's over 300 hospitals uh, nationwide with systems that are still single hospital systems and as broad as, you know, a LifePoint, um, Baptist, Texas Health Resources, University of Tennessee, I, mean, I could go on and on. Um, but the, the structure of it that you were asking about, it really is both from a governance perspective as well as a financial perspective, a true partnership. It's a true equity partnership where we own a majority of the uh, underlying home health provider, hospice provider, long-term acute care provider. They own a minority interest um, in, the, in the providership itself. But outside of economics and ownership, I would tell you it very much is a 50-50 partnership. Like the, they are involved in strategic decisions as we go de novo and open new locations, as we broaden our service offerings. Um, they're critically involved in the kind of the care transition, coordination, clinical pathway, driving outcomes. Uh, here recently, we're getting more and more involved in value-based purchasing and going more at risk. So being a partner with the health system has a lot of advantages in that area. And, you know, Dr. Ben and his role, along with the CMOs at the health system, work hand in glove with the managed care folks uh, to, to put those constructs in place. So it really is, um, it is an intimate partnership. Uh, we have a governing board for every unique partnership that meets at minimum on a quarterly basis. So we've got C-suite engagement by LHC group, C-suite engagement by the hospital, um, where we set direction and strategy and vision. So it is, it is very much 80 separate and distinct, unique, strategic partnerships. That's, that's quite a bit. Are they, with these JV deals, are the hospitals approaching you guys? Are you guys approaching the hospitals? Is it both? Um, how do they typically start? Um, I would say it's both. Um, uh, early on, we had to do a lot more approaching of hospitals when we were, as I would say, kind of uh, maturing up and getting our reputation within the industry and getting our street cred, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. We did a lot more, yeah. you know, us going on the offensive. I would say over the last probably at least five years, maybe since 2015, it's been a lot more inbound um, where hospitals, and, and really what I would say is driving that is the coming together not only of our size, sophistication, scale, our reputation in the marketplace as being the industry leader from a quality standpoint. There's a lot of things like that that, that kind of lead us to that place. But I would also tell you I've seen over the last five years, hospitals and health systems place a much higher value on the strategic element of delivery of care in the home. Now, they're, <clears throat> for the most part, I think they would tell you their expertise is the delivery of care inside the four walls of a, of a institutional setting, but they now value the delivery of care in the home more than ever, more than ever before. And, you know, whether it's ACOs, whether it's population health, whether it's value-based risk-sharing arrangements, they see the, the importance of home, but they like partnering with someone like us who lives it, breathes it, and has the support infrastructure from a quality standpoint, a compliance standpoint 
Point and all those other areas uh, to partner with. So by us having done it since the mid-90s, it's really given us a strategic advantage maybe in the marketplace because we have, you know, 20 years, as you said earlier, experience doing this. And by the time the hospitals really started focusing on it, we had the strongest track record of doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's jump into a recent change in the home health world, which is PDGM. Now, even though our audience are healthcare professionals, they may, you know, most of them are not necessarily home health employees, so they may not know about this whole PDGM. So this could be for either Dr. Ben or Josh, whoever wants to touch on it. What is PDGM here in 2020? And what does that mean both for healthcare professionals who are referring patients to home health as well as the patients themselves? And that could be for either of you. Sure, I, I can uh, take the start and then hand it off to Dr. Ben to definitely uh, cover from a clinical perspective. Uh, so PDGM stands for the Patient Driven Groupings Model. And at its core, it is a reimbursement change for the home health industry. Um, and there's a lot of you know, wrinkles to what that means. Prior to PDGM, prior to 2020, home health got paid on a 60-day episode of care that had a 60-day payment period. Within that, there were also incremental additional thresholds that therapy specifically played a part in how much you were reimbursed. So at different intervals, so at 10 therapy visits, you would get X amount of dollars. At 14 therapy visits, you would get Y amount of dollars. And therapy specifically as a, a um, you know, element of the care plan would directly impact reimbursement. When you fast forward into PDGM, PDGM does a few things. It, it's still a 60-day episode of care. So the physician orders home health care for 60 days. However, it's now broken down into two 30-day payment periods. So there is a P1 and a P2, a, a period one, period two within the 60-day episode. So your, your payment is now split into two periods, essentially split into half. Um, in home health, there is a LUPA threshold, a low utilization payment threshold that in the 60-day world was a single LUPA threshold for, for all episodes. As long as you made five visits or more, you've got the full episodic payment. In post-PDGM, there is separate LUPA thresholds within each 30-day payment period, and it varies based on the HHRG or the Home Health Resource Group. Um, in pre-PDGM, there were 153 HHRGs. In post-PDGM, there are 432. So it's a lot more complex, a lot more patient comorbidities, a lot more clinical specificity in how you code and set your care plans up for the patients based on their conditions and whatnot. I then asked Dr. Ben what homebound status means and what are some recent changes in homebound status? In order to receive home health care, uh, in a tr traditional sense, um, you, the patient had to be declared homebound. In other words, it had to be a significant hardship uh, for the patient to get to an outpatient therapy program to receive physical therapy or uh, to get to physician's offices more often than, say, every month or every three months. They couldn't come in for frequent visits or they couldn't receive uh, um, IV uh, antibiotics through an infusion center because it was difficult for them to get there. And it was based very much on mobility uh, as well as on um, activities of daily living and, and, and also um, what the family could provide transport-wise. 
And so once they were declared, quote, homebound based on a number of these issues, uh, then they could receive home health care. And, and that's fine, and that's not a bad way to look at it. Uh, unfortunately, as, um, as things changed, as, uh, as payers, uh, as well as uh, hospitals became um, responsible for readmission rates, and as Josh mentioned, uh, focused on care outside of the four walls of the hospital, it left out a significant number of individuals who had numerous um, comorbid conditions and struggled with their health care, um, but did not qualify to receive nursing visits or therapy visits within the home. And so uh, one of the things that has happened with COVID-19 is that there was a relaxation of this homebound status because uh, we had individuals who may have had some other uh, chronic conditions, diabetes or high blood pressure, or maybe none at all who developed uh, uh, COVID-19 or COVID-like 19 symptoms that needed to be monitored, cared for, um, and, uh, and spent time with. And since we were to, in a sense, all homebound with the stay in place orders and uh, you remain at home orders and limitations about uh, a public participation and, and difficulty getting in and out and traveling uh, at that time. That's where the relaxed nature of the, uh, the homebound status came from uh, during COVID-19. And so, uh, so we were able to care for a larger number of individuals. And as the stigma of going to the hospital and our emergency department, uh, became a, an area of concern for these patients and their families, uh, it was easier for us to, uh, to be mobile and efficient and set up a program where, um, you know, these patients started showing signs of symptoms, we could go out to the home and begin their care or do a thorough assessment and decide whether this is a patient that needs to go on into the hospital or can remain at home and continue care and coordinate uh, with some maybe some video conferencing or telephone conferencing with physicians directly and, and deliver that care in the home. Yeah, um, Gavin, this is Josh. If, if I could maybe just uh, add a little bit uh, from the from the policy perspective, um, and and speak to homebound and how you know even here at LHC Group we've thought about it for more than a decade. Uh, so you know in the non-COVID you know loosening up as as Dr. Ben described, it's this notion of a considerable and taxing effort to leave the home, an inability to leave the home without a considerable and taxing effort or the help of assistance devices, all the stuff that he just described. Um, but, but when you step back um, and think about the, the population of patients that could benefit from care being delivered in their home and from a healthcare ecosystem standpoint, if we are trying to provide the highest quality care with the best patient outcomes and the lowest cost setting the most efficiently we can, then you know I humbly believe that the homebound requirement, if ever from a policy perspective, were to be either removed or significantly modified to allow more patients to receive the types of care that we provide, um, even if they can leave their home from time to time, it would reduce the overall total cost of care within our healthcare system. And, you know, under the coronavirus pandemic, this is given at least one opportunity to show two things that home health can do. One, by saying that if you're susceptible to COVID-19, you're now medically contraindicated to leave your home, so you're now homebound. So that is a, a very different position than considerable and taxing effort to leave the home. <laughs> um, so that tells me, at least in the face of a pandemic, policymakers um, uh, appreciate the, the benefit of providing care in the home 
to a broader patient group than just those that were traditionally deemed homebound. Um, so that, that shows me that there is an opportunity longer term to possibly have a bigger policy discussion, uh, which you know we would welcome and think that it would be really good for not only patients, but for our healthcare costs in general in the country. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point, Josh. And uh, I'm, I'm rooting for those policies to continue to change. And like you said, uh, lower cost of care and people want to be in their home anyways. So as we wrap up the show, um, one big point we haven't touched on, um, and maybe we can close with this, is the whole concept of diversion away from skilled nursing facilities for the general public that might be listening, convalescent homes, after hospitalization, patients typically or often go to a SNF or skilled nursing facility for rehabilitation. Um, as all of you know, during the pandemic, congregate living spaces, including skilled nursing, um, is been a, a real reason why there's been so many deaths. And it's not anybody's fault, it's just kind of the nature of this. So there's a diversion to the home. How has the diversion away from congregate living impacted you guys during the pandemic? And also, you guys work with skilled nursing facilities and seek relationships and business from skilled nursing facilities. So as you're talking to hospitals about diverting away from skilled nursing, how do you balance sharing that message of diversion while also working with skilled nursing facilities? Sure. Uh, Dr. Ben, you want me to start and you bring it home or how do you, how do you want to tackle this question? That's fine. Let's do that. Go ahead. Get started. Uh, and then you can always chime in at the end if I missed anything or misspoke. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, uh, Gavin, it's, it's interesting the connection you just drew between the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, SNF diversion, if that's what, you know, we want to loosely refer to this as. But I, I would take you well before COVID-19 was even a phrase. Um, there was this general movement within healthcare to, you know, move as much patient volume that is clinically appropriate to be cared for in the lowest cost setting, go back to our prior conversation. Um, and a big portion of that is taking, you know, that lower tier of patients that have historically been cared for in a skilled nursing facility who can clinically and appropriately be taken care for in their home at a much reduced cost. So when you think about accountable care organizations, when you think about capitated managed care environments, when you think about healthcare providers trying to reduce the total cost of care, the phrase we said earlier, a, a big ingredient to that is providing care in the most clinically appropriate setting for the best patient outcome at the lowest cost. And, you know, we believe that there is a high percentage of traditional patients that have historically gone to skilled nursing that could be cared for in the home, regardless of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, when you throw the wrinkle of the coronavirus pandemic on top of it, you now have some of the social issues that you are raising and whether it's anxiety, fear, you know, some of those things that have led to even more conversation around how can we get patients home either faster or diverting around institutional settings altogether um, has been kind of caused, if you will. And, and honestly, I don't think anyone knows what the new normal is going to look like uh, post COVID-19 um, and, and what changes within the healthcare system come from that. Um, but, you know, whether it's telemedicine, whether it's SNF diversion, whether, you know, some of these other things, I think we're going to see, you know, more and more of that. Uh, and then the only other thing I would say before handing it off to Dr. Ben is, you know, 
from a working with skilled nursing facilities, um, we have great relationships with skilled nursing facilities. Um, they are a source of not only referral, but they are a source of clinical collaboration. And when you go back to what Dr. Ben was saying earlier, you know, to really provide a longitudinal care plan, a true care transition from an acute stay, either pre or post, to a sniff all the way into the home, if you can have alignment among all the provider groups and, and truly say what is the most clinically appropriate setting, there's going to be patients that aren't in SNFs today that would be in SNFs under that regime. So there may be patients currently in SNFs that get diverted down to the home, and there may be patients in other care settings that get diverted into the SNF. So it's more about clinical appropriate placement as opposed to just take them all out of SNF. Dr. Ben? Yeah, you, you covered it pretty well, Josh. Good job. Um, yeah, to add to that, um, along the same thing, there's a lot of overlap in, in patients between, uh, I'll give an example, uh, unrelated to both, between an inpatient rehabilitation unit and what can be delivered um, in an outpatient physical therapy setting. And sometimes uh, the, those patients overlap. And I think that's what we're looking for is like, what's the most appropriate and cost-effective placement? So we feel that there's a percentage of the population um, that are in a skilled nursing facility uh, who would prefer to be at home. And if we can look at it from a standpoint of, okay, what barriers are preventing them to, to return to their home and how can we deliver that in the home? Uh, because sometimes they're not medical. Sometimes there are social needs such as meals or transportation or, or sitter service or respite care. So how do we get those non-skilled uh, issues uh, taken care of so that that patient can be in the home, which is where they want to be anyway, and that we can deliver a high quality care um, that meets their needs. So uh, at the same time, so that's, that's the transition or diversion out of, a, out of a skilled nursing facility and into the home environment. Um, at the same time, the whole post-acute continuum, as I mentioned earlier, uh, inpatient rehab, uh, skilled nursing facilities, uh, long-term care units, uh, all, have their, all have their place. And, it, and again, as Josh mentioned, how do we come together and decide which patients from a clinical standpoint and a cost-effectiveness standpoint need to be in which, which service line? And then how do the other service lines uh, support that? So as an example, as we work with our skilled nursing facilities, um, as they have bed capacity issues, as they uh, pre-COVID, um, as they fill up and, they, and hospitals have needs to move some of those patients that, uh, that very much need to be in an inpatient facility, in a skilled nursing facility, how do we help that facility uh, discharge their patients back to home, back to the home environment, and then continue their care that they began in the hospital that was also delivered in a skilled nursing facility, and we can con uh, continue to provide that support and care uh, in a home health setting uh, that gets them out of that inpatient facility faster and more efficiently. So that's how we can partner and then also all look at what we've done and say, did we get them out soon enough? Could we get them out even sooner? Did we have an opportunity here uh, to stay a little bit longer because that would have suit their, their needs uh, as far as for receiving certain types of titrations and medications and some of the clinical aspects of what go on. So I think that's how we can both be a partner to a skilled nursing facility, but also together help the hospital identify patient needs and uh, get those needs delivered. And if the home health, and if home uh, is the right setting, then absolutely we can do so many things medically in the home uh, from a home health standpoint that uh, sometimes uh, patients can't take part in that because of some other social issues that require them to be in a, in a facility. So I prefer going forward that we start looking at 
here's the patient, here's their medical need, uh, how do we overcome some of those barriers uh, for them that are in the way of them returning to the home environment? And then you come with something like COVID and it makes us completely rethink that, right? It sheds a light on what we've been doing traditionally, not just from a home health and SNF standpoint, but from a, from a nationwide medical standpoint, it makes us rethink things. How can we do things more efficiently? How can we provide safe environments for the patient? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, no one's fault. We're all trying to deliver the absolute uh, best care that we possibly can. Uh, but in a COVID situation, it made the home environment that much more appropriate, uh, right? The, the uh, biggest uh, thing we can do for, for COVID or to prevent it is to isolate more. To, and, and, and the patients that have these comorbid conditions, uh, they are the most at-risk population. And so they're, how do you isolate them? Place them back in their home. Um, and so, so we've been able to play a big role in that. We, and as we start talking about bundled payments uh, and start working with some of the payer models, whether it be a Humana, United, or any of those, uh, they have recognized, and that, that was a very pleasant thing that I saw from COVID, um, if there is anything from it, is that they stepped up to the plate and said, look, we have a patient population uh, that we're responsible for. And some of them came to us and said, you know, what can we do, what can you do? How can we partner so you can make it safer uh, for these patients to stay in the home as they're trying to avoid uh, emergency departments and inpatient care. Or when the uh, skilled nursing facilities started looking at their patients and saying, hey, when, how many of these patients can go home, uh, you know, so, so that we can pay more attention to those that have the greater need that cannot go home. And so we've been able to play a role and partner in that process. And, uh, and that's been very important, uh, both to me personally uh, and to our company. Thank you very much, Dr. Ben, and uh, I just want to thank both of you, Josh and Dr. Ben, uh, for being on the show. I know we've gone a little bit over our scheduled one hour together. Um, for those of you that are seeing this or listening to this, there's actually a technical uh, issue on this show, and the reason I bring this up is the LHC team, uh, Mark Willis, Casey Ardoin, I apologize, Casey, if I didn't say your last name correctly, did a really good job preparing for, I don't know, for Dr. Ben or, uh, or Josh, if this was your first uh, Zoom uh, podcast, but uh, your team did a great job preparing for it, and I was the one who had the technical issue. So uh, just want to thank Josh and, and Dr. Ben for bearing with us here at Pop-Up Podcast, and me in particular. How can folks learn more about LHC Group as we wrap up? Yeah, no, um, uh, at, whether it's um, any uh, healthcare practitioners that are listening, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're in uh, 35 states plus the District of Columbia, so it's uh, difficult. Uh, you even alluded to it, Gavin. We're not LHC Group everywhere. We're DFW Home Health. We're Ochsner Home Health. We're Baptist Home Health. We're University of Tennessee Home Health. But I would encourage any healthcare provider out there, especially on the practitioner side, that um, you know uh, might have an interest in providing healthcare in the home uh, to to look us up in your local marketplace. Um, and then for any uh, executives, any, any C-suite folks uh, at hospitals and health systems that might be listening, if you've got either a pain point or a strategic direction, you're headed uh, for home health, for hospice, or anything post-acute, um, we would love to engage and have a conversation with you and hopefully, you know, maybe be part of your healthcare solution. Um, so you can, you know, reach out directly to either myself or Dr. Ben, uh, or you can, you know, reach out through us uh, through our uh, website as well. Great, Josh. And uh, is it LHC.com or what's that website there? Yep. Uh, www.lhcgroup.com. No capital letters. L-H-C-G-R-O-U-P.com. 
Very good. Well, again, Dr. Ben and Josh, thanks so much. Mark and Casey uh, at your uh, LHC group have been great in helping coordinate this. Folks, uh, again, that website is lhcgroup.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode of Pop Up Podcast, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. And of course, listen to other episodes on popupodcast.com or iTunes as well. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.